is good to see you on this beautiful morning. I thought we were about to have a fight over trying to get to these Ephesians scripture journals when Drew made the announcement there was free journals available in the, the front and back of the room. I've never seen Baptists quite so fighting over a book before. I love it. So we'll get another case in this week. If you did not get these, it's just a free tool for you. It's just the text of the scripture from Ephesians. If you want something portable to be able to look at and read, text on one side, blank on the other for you to write. It's not sacrilegious to write notes next to your Bible mo- Bible column here of things, and this makes it easy for you to do reflections on it as you read through the book. But those went really quick. We'll get another case in this week if you missed those on it. So friends, we are starting a new sermon series today. We finished the Gospel of John, which I know it's kind of hard to believe. After 61 weeks in the Gospel of John, we finally made it to the end, and we've seen so much over all those 61 weeks of what the gospel is, gospel being the good news of who Jesus is, that he came when we could not get to God. He came to us and lived a perfect life. He showed us who God was, and he went to the cross, not just to show a good example to us, but he went to the cross to take the wrath that you and I deserve from a holy God for our sin. And he bore that on the cross as our substitute, as our sacrifice, and he rose again on the third day, and we saw what that looked like over all those weeks. We also saw how it changed us if we really believe in that. If we really believe in who Christ is, our lives will be different. Our lives will not be the same. Belief is not just me praying a prayer, walking an aisle. Belief is I have a transformed life from God. And then last week, friends, I hope you were blessed by hearing John Geiger's testimony. If you missed it, it's on the podcast on our website and Facebook page. But John Geiger, what a picture that was for us of everything we've seen in John. What does a transformed life look like? One who believes in the gospel so much that he can face death with ALS disease takes over his body with hope and with peace and with confidence. We talk about a radical transformation from above. Everything we talked about in John, we saw lived out for us right there last week, and I hope you were encouraged by that. So where do we go from here? Well, we go to the book of Ephesians. It's our great follow-up for us to everything we've been seeing in the gospel of John. So go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians or find it in your Bible app as we get started this morning with that. I'm excited about our study of Ephesians. I believe it's going to be a book that's going to change our lives. It's going to take everything we've been seeing in the Gospel of John and take us even deeper into it. Because we look at it, we're going to see what Christ has done for us, and particularly how that changes our identity, who we are in Christ. That's particularly the first part of the book. Then it's going to show us how do we live because of that. If we really are in Christ, if I have a new identity because of this Gospel message we've seen for the last 61 weeks, now how is my life different? What changes in my life because of that? I love what one author wrote. He said regarding Ephesians, it is not so much what we will do with the epistle or the letter, but what it will do with us. So we look ahead to the weeks to come. It's not so much what we do with this letter to the Ephesians. I'm excited about what it's going to do in us and through us. I believe God's going to use our study of the book of Ephesians to stretch us in a lot of ways, to stretch our understanding of the bigness of God, his sovereignty, his rule, his reign over all things. I believe the study of Ephesians will stretch us in our worship of him to better understand who we are worshiping and why we worship him. I believe the study of Ephesians will stretch us in our prayers, knowing for what we pray, how we pray, and how we're even confident in our praying. I'll be able to stretch us in our marriages to help us better understand husband-wife relationships, stretch us in our relationship with our children and how we understand parent-child relationships. It'll stretch us and grow us in understanding of racial issues. It'll stretch us and grow us in our work relationships. It'll stretch us in our understanding of personal holiness and what that means. It'll stretch us even in our understanding of demonic and unseen spiritual worlds. It's going to tackle all that and so much more in less than five pages in most of our Bibles. Just a few scrolls on your Bible app. In less than 2,500 words, the book of Ephesians tackles all those subjects and so much more. So I'm really excited about us tackling all those issues in the months to come on this. But before we get into all those specifics, I want us this morning to take a big picture look 
out of the book of Ephesians, like we did with the Gospel of John. I want us to jump right in. I want us to take a minute and get the big picture to make sure we understand what we are studying in these months to come. Because Ephesians was not written in a vacuum. It was written by a real person, two very real people, in a very real city, for a very real reason. And it has very real relevance to us in Montgomery today. And so I want us to kind of put all that together. And I have a main idea I want us to work off of this morning to understand Ephesians. It's simply this. God inspired Paul to write this letter to the Ephesians to remind believers then and now who they are and how their lives should be different because of it. So again, this morning, big picture of the book, I want to say that God inspired Paul to write this letter to the Ephesians to remind believers then and now who they are and how their lives should be different because of it. So we're going to see who wrote it, the author. We're going to see who the audience is, who's receiving this letter originally. We're going to see what the purpose was for the sending of this letter to the original audience. We're also going to see what the purpose is for us as well, because we are part of that audience, as we will see in just a minute. So God inspired Paul to write this letter to the Ephesians to remind believers then and now who they are and how their lives should be different because of that. So let's start with the first question. Who is the author of the Ephesians? Well, ultimately, God. This is a place for the Sunday school answer. God is ultimately the one behind this book. God is the ultimate author. Friends, when we talk about the Bible, we call it the Word of God. That is not just some nice little religious term that we use. It's the term that if we really understand it will change our lives. This is the very words of God that God wants you and I to have and to know. It's a life-transforming truth. In fact, I want you to see two scriptures on the screen really quickly to get that big picture out of it. First is 2 Timothy 3.16. You probably have heard this one before. But 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So everything we read, no matter if we're in John or in Ephesians or any other book of the Bible, everything from Genesis to Revelation is breathed out by God. You hear us talk about the inspiration of Scripture. That's the idea that God has breathed out. God has spoken these very words for us. And so God has breathed out. He's spoken what we need to hear. So when we hear the words of Ephesians, when we hear the words of the Gospel of John, we are hearing the breath of God, the voice of God that he has intended for us. I also want you to see this in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 as well. This one tells us that for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So how do we get the Bible? How do we get the scriptures that we have? Men were inspired by God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't some man sat down and said, man, I'm going to write this book and I want this to be part of scripture. This is God's work. This is the will of God as the Holy Spirit carries along men who wrote these letters and the books of the Bible. What's so incredibly cool about this, and we could, there's a lot more we can say about this, but God doesn't override their personalities. Ephesians is going to sound different than John did, and Peter's going to sound very different than Paul's writings. And that would, you'd expect that. Peter's a fisherman, Paul's a scholar. You'd expect them to sound very different. They do. So God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, speaks through these men, but speaks through their personalities as well. So you see the uniqueness of each book come out in this. And God is amazing how he does that. And in the book of Ephesians, who's the one that God is working through? Who's the one who the Holy Spirit is carrying along? Well, it's the Apostle Paul. So go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, and let's just look at the beginning of the book, and let's see who the author is. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So this is really obvious here. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Paul, yeah, that's a hard one to miss here. He self-identifies himself for us. But notice the term he uses for himself here. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
The word apostle literally means sent one. He's saying, I am Paul and I am sent by God to deliver this message to you. He's claiming what we call apostolic authority. He's claiming to have the authority to speak God's words on behalf of God to God's people. Friends, realize as we get into Ephesians here, we are not reading some random pastor's blog on the internet and talking about it. We are reading the very words of God, the breath of God, the inspiration of God, as he, the Holy Spirit moved through men, here moved through the Apostle Paul, to give us the very words of God that God himself wants us to know. And notice that Paul understands this. This is not something Paul set out to do. Paul didn't sit down one day and go, I'm going to write to the people in Ephesus because it's going to make me a lot of money. I'm going to write to the people in Ephesus because I want to get really famous. That's not what's going on here. This is the will of God inspiring Paul to give this message to the church in Ephesus and to us. Again, notice verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. He's an apostle. He's speaking on behalf of God, not by his own doing. He's submitted totally to the authority of God and the sovereignty of God. If you want to read more about it later, go read Acts 8 and 9. Because in Acts 8, it wasn't even named Paul yet. He was Saul. If you know his story, he was not one who liked Jesus at all. He was one who persecuted Christians. In fact, you see in Acts 8, him standing by as the very first Christian martyr, person killed for his faith, was Stephen, was stoned to death for believing in Jesus. And and Saul stands there approving of it. Please, you almost see him smiling, watching a man suffer and die. This is a man who hated God. He ravaged the church. But in Acts chapter 9, as he's traveling to Damascus to ravage the church more, to kill more Christians, he doesn't go, man, I'm doing wrong. I want to follow God now. God zaps him with a blinding light. God speaks to him and calls out, why are you persecuting me? And God in his sovereignty takes Paul, who is a, or Saul, who's a persecutor of the church and hates the church, and God turns him to himself. God reaches out and grabs him in God's grace and turns him and sets him apart for the work that he's going to do. And I want you to see the work he calls him to. Acts chapter 9, verse 15. We'll put it up on the screen for you this morning. It's when Ananias is sent by God to go talk to Saul about what's to come. But the Lord said to him, this is to Ananias, Go, for he, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God has set apart Saul, who he renames Paul, to be one who will take the gospel to Israel and to the Gentiles as well. And then verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This is not Saul becoming Paul, wanting to become really cool and famous and a popular megachurch pastor who gets all the TV attention. This is a guy who is willing to suffer for the name because God in his sovereignty took a guy who hated him, turned his heart to God, and then sent him out to be a mouthpiece for all the nations to hear who God is. And he does that through his preaching ministry that you see through, recorded through the book of Acts. But he does it as well through his writing of these inspired words of God in these letters. But there's one other detail about Paul I want you to understand as the author of this book. So turn over in Ephesians or scroll over to Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. Because he self-identifies himself a second time in the book of Ephesians and gives us one more detail about himself. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He now identifies himself as Paul, but now not just an apostle. He's an apostle who's now a prisoner. You remember what we just read in Acts 9, 16, that he would suffer for the sake of the kingdom. And he's doing that. He is now under house arrest in Rome. This actually helps us date this. He wrote this letter around AD 60. Somewhere AD 60 to AD 62, because that's the period that he's a prisoner in Rome under house arrest. If you want to read that, you can read that in Acts 28 later today. He's not free to travel because he's under house arrest, but he's free to write. And so to build up the churches that he's passionate about, he writes Ephesians, he writes Philippians, he writes Colossians, he writes Philemon, these four books he writes, and we call them prison epistles, because he's writing while he himself is in 
prison, suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now, what does Paul write? Does he write a journal? Does he write a blog? Does he write a systematic theology? Does he write a book here? Does he write some biography? No, he writes a letter. God inspired Paul to write a letter. We call that sometimes an epistle. It's a letter or an epistle. It's written by someone to another person or group at a particular time for a particular reason. Now, you may be going, Grady, it doesn't look like a letter to me. If we were writing a letter today, he was doing today, it would probably be like, Dear believers in Ephesus, comma, I hope you are doing well. Blessings to you. Then he gives all the content, sincerely, Paul, comma, an apostle of Christ. That's not how they did letters. That's how we do them now. That's not how they did them back then. Back to this time, if you send a letter, first thing you do is you tell the person who you are and who it's going to. Author, recipient. Then you have some type of thanksgiving or blessing or hope for them. You write the body of the letter, and then you give a conclusion. And that's exactly what Ephesians does. It follows the customary letter format of the time. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Two, the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very standard letter format at the time. He tells them who he is, who it's going to, he has a blessing for them, and then he jumps into the body of the message. So Paul wrote this. God's ultimately the author, works through Paul to write a letter. But who's he writing a letter to? Back in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul is writing a letter to the people in Ephesus. Now, friends, Ephesus is a fascinating city. We know more about Ephesus than just about any other city from ancient times. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey, and there's been more archaeological exploration of Ephesus than any other city from antiquity. There's so much that's been discovered about Ephesus, and it's fascinating to get some context for us of this letter Paul's writing to people in Ephesus. He's writing to people in a city that's about the size of Montgomery. Ephesus had about 200,000 people in it. So picture the population of Montgomery as the population of Ephesus that Paul is writing to here. But it's a city with huge significance in the world at the time. Think of a city the size of Montgomery with the influence of a London or a New York. That's what Ephesus was at the time. Ephesus was a place of political importance. It was the, the, the capital of the Roman province of Asia. So anything politically that happened in the Roman area there came through Ephesus. It was a place of great trade. It was a seaport. And so they have much ocean liners coming in, and they have many roads coming through. So much trade happened in Ephesus. It was a city of much diversity, of different races, different, different ethnicities all coming together because many foreigners wanted to be there because of the political influence and because of the trade influence there and the financial centers there. So many people from all over the world would be there. It was a wealthy city. As they've excavated Ephesus, they've actually found two-story homes that are 2,000 square feet. So picture subdivisions of Montgomery and some of the larger ones, and yet homes that size were in Ephesus at the time. It was a place that loved the arts. In fact, they had a theater, an amphitheater in Ephesus that was bigger than many football stadiums. They could fit 50,000 people into their amphitheater in the city. And so in many ways, Paul is writing to a city much like Montgomery. He's writing to a city that is the size of Montgomery. He's writing to a city that is a place of political importance for the region, a place that has economic importance for the region, a place that loves the arts, a place that has a good bit of wealth, and a place that's pretty diverse in terms of races and ethnicity all in one place. There's one other important thing about Ephesus you need to know if we're going to understand the book of Ephesians. That is, Ephesus was full of almost all non-believers. There were very few Christians in Ephesus at the time. Ephesus was a city that would be very spiritually dark. It was a city where almost everyone there practiced what we call black magic 
for the occult. Almost all the non-believers in Ephesus practice different types of divinations and magical spells and, and black arts and whatever you want to call those things there. But beyond that, Ephesus was the home, the central place of worship in the world for a false god, or should I say a false goddess, whose name was Artemis or Diana. In fact, in the middle of the town of Ephesus was a massive, massive temple to Artemis. When we're talking massive, I mean, I mean massive here. So in your mind, think back to history. Do you remember pictures of the Parthenon in, in Greece? Now quadruple that. The temple to, to Artemis in the middle of Ephesus was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. The columns at the front of Artemis' temple were 60 feet tall. This place of false worship and idolatry in the middle of Ephesus was so big and so grand and so glorious, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This is what's happening in Ephesus to where Paul is writing. The whole city so revolved around this worship to this goddess Artemis, or again Diana, that she was called the guardian of the city. The people in the town revered her and referred to her as the queen of heaven. The people in the city called her the Lord. They even called her the Savior. So all throughout the city are people referring to the statue of Artemis and calling her Queen of Heaven, Lord, my Savior, my Guardian. In fact, the worship of her was so significant in the city that twice a week the streets of the city would fill and people would carry her statue through the city in these processions and people would follow along and the city would be full of the worship of her. In fact, she was everywhere. All the coins of the city had her picture on them. And in fact, if you wanted to do banking, you couldn't run down to the regions or the compass or pick your bank. All the banking was done in the temple. So if you wanted to bank, you went to the temple. And so Paul is writing to a people in a city where idolatry was everywhere. Where literally every aspect of your life is lived under the shadow of this demonic worship of this false goddess named Artemis. You couldn't go buy bread without seeing this false goddess's face. You couldn't go to the bank and get money without going into the presence of a demonic temple where people were worshiping her. You couldn't even sit in your home without knowing that people on either side of you were practicing black magic and witchcraft and other occult type things. That's the context of where Paul is writing. But Paul's not writing to those who are doing those things. He's writing to the believers who've been delivered from that and set apart from that, to people trying to live for Christ in a place as difficult as that. Go back to Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To, to the saints, that means to the holy ones, the ones set apart, the ones who aren't blending in to all this false worship of Ephesus, the ones who are different from the surrounding community of around 200,000 people worshiping false gods. And he's writing to the people who are different from all that. I think when I read it, and perhaps when you read this verse to the saints who are in Ephesus, we just kind of roll over that. But again, picture in your mind this massive temple false worship everywhere. The whole city is in the shadow of idolatry. And Paul's saying to those who are remaining faithful in that, it'd almost be the equivalent today of us, of him writing, saying, to the saints who are faithful in North Korea, grace to you and peace. It'd be the equivalent. It should have the, the, the it makes them pause the way it make us pause if he wrote, to the faithful who are in Baghdad, grace to you and peace. In a place where it'd be so difficult to live out the Christian life, he's writing to them saying, to you who are saints, who are in Ephesus, in this awful place of so much idolatry, but you are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace. And so Paul is writing to those who have been transformed. There's a huge Jewish population there, so he's writing to the Jews who are no longer waiting for the Messiah, but who knows the Messiah has come. He's writing to people who used to bow down and worship to Artemis in this massive temple, who've been delivered from that, and now know that Artemis is not the protector of the city, that Artemis is not Savior, but Jesus is the true Savior. He's writing to them. 
He's writing to people who used to do black magic in their homes and do divination, all these type things, but have put that aside and are now following Christ and God alone as a sovereign Lord and the one who their hope is in. And he's writing to them, those who've been transformed from those practices. In fact, so many have been transformed and changed in that city. Something interesting happens. Acts chapter 19, Taylor, if you'll put that on the screen for us. Verse 11. This is, this is Acts' account of what happens in Ephesus. I want you to hear this to get a picture, again, of the idolatry of the city but what the power of the gospel does, so you have context of why Paul's writing. So Acts chapter 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. I'll just keep going through it there. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of, by, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva we're doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many, also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Friends, this is the context into which Paul is writing. To people who once had been worshipers of Artemis, people who had been Jews who had not believed in the Messiah, people who had practiced these magical arts in their home, but had been so transformed by the gospel, they would even burn all their magical books at the cost of 50,000 pieces of silver. It's a town to where you even see in that account an act of the demonic reality of demons and people and leaping on people and all these things. It was a place of so much false worship, so much idolatry. And yet God inspired Paul to write a letter to the believers who are there, who've been set apart and changed by the gospel, who are in that very difficult place. Which raises the question, for what purpose? Why did Paul write to them? Which is a little more backstory to help us understand why he would write to them. Paul had been to Ephesus before, during what we call his second missionary journey. He had been to Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus, all in the same Trip. In fact, his first visit was very brief. Acts chapter 18, verse 19, tells us a little bit about it. And they came to Ephesus, as Paul and some of his traveling companions, and he left them there. But he himself went to the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he, Paul, declined. But on taking leave, they said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul shows up in Ephesus. He, goes to, he does what he normally does. He starts with the Jews first. He goes to the synagogue and tries to reason with them. He then, they say, stay longer. He goes, no thanks, I'm going to go, and if God wills, I'll come back. But Paul leaves behind Aquila and Priscilla, names you may know from the book of Acts. They were joined by Apollos, and Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos established the church in Ephesus. And it started to grow and did decently well there. So Paul returns now to minister to the people in Ephesus. He comes back and stays two years. Paul comes to this place of great idolatry where there's a fledgling church starting to grow, and he invests two years of his life planning himself to teach people who Jesus is what their identity in Christ is and how they're to live because of it. And you see the results of it in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. I love this. They continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And what a testimony. Paul spends two years in Ephesus on the second trip. And it can be said of that that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, now how could everyone from all the places of Asia hear his word? 
Remember what Ephesus was. It was a center of trade. It was a center of where almost all the nations came. If we went to New York, friends, we could probably engage people from almost every people group in the world in New York City today or London today. People from all over the world are in these major cities. The same was true back then. And there was literally people from all over all the major parts of Asia living in Ephesus. And as Paul proclaimed the gospel there, literally people from all the residents of Asia, all the people groups of Asia were able to hear the word of the Lord. And his influence was so great. Acts chapter 19 verse 20 gives us a glimpse of what happened on the second visit. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And friends, what a testimony that is. And what a prayer that should be for us even here in Montgomery that the word of the Lord would continue to increase and would prevail mightily in this. In fact, the church grew so much under Paul's two years there, the people who were the idolaters who made idols for people to worship of Artemis began to get scared that they would lose their business. Acts chapter 19, verse 23 gives us a glimpse of this, and this is a fascinating account of what's happening in Ephesus. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So here's a guy who uses his silversmithing to make shrines little of, of Artemis that people could buy and take home to worship this false goddess. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. He said, men, you know that from this business, making idols, we have our wealth. And you, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. It's a good thing to learn, right? Verse 27. And there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And pause there for a minute. They were getting so concerned that so many were following Christ. This massive temple, one of seven wonders of the ancient world, four times the size of the Parthenon, massive 60-foot columns. They're going, this massive temple of Artemis may be counted as nothing. The gospel was that powerful in the city, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. Verse 28. She whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together to the theater, a 50,000-seat amphitheater I was talking about, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions, and travel. Friends, after the two years of Paul in Ephesus, it had such an impact on that city that the people who made the statues were getting scared that they would lose their job. They were scared that this massive temple might come into disrepute. And so they dragged like 50,000 people from the city into this amphitheater to cause a whole commotion to try to stop the gospel advance. And so now, seven to ten years after all that has happened, Paul's writing to these people who lived through that, who have lived in the midst of this, who are trying to live out the gospel in places challenging as Ephesus. Because if you were Paul and you're writing to your friends in Ephesus, what would you say to them? What would you write to them? How would you try to help them? Well, back to our main idea. God inspired Paul to write this letter to the Ephesians to remind believers of two things. Who they are and how their lives should be different because of it. Paul's writing to these people in Ephesus all about discipleship. And so many of Paul's letters, he's correcting them. He's rebuking them for some sin in their midst. But here, there's no rebuke in Ephesians. It's one of the few letters where there's no rebuke. It is all encouragement, discipleship, living out the Christian life, pressing on. It's what we call formative. He's shaping them and continuing to encourage them in growing in who they are. First of all, he's reminding them of who they are in Christ, their identity. He's not giving them some self-help identity. He's not telling them, get up in the morning, see the temple distance, and claim your blessing for today. He's getting up and he's telling them who God sees them as. And so over the next three chapters, these first three chapters of Ephesians in the weeks to come, we're not going to see an identity that you and I choose for ourselves and we can kind of just conjure up and self-will to feel better about ourselves. It's, God, it's a God-given identity. Who are we in Christ? Who does God say that we are? But not just individuals, but who does God say we are 
together. And so Paul's going to encourage them in that. In the midst of all the difficulties of Ephesus, he's going to remind them, here is who you are in Jesus. Here's what God has done for you. Here's how God sees you this day. But the second thing he's going to show them is, now because of that identity, your life better be different. And here's how it should be different. Because all around the people in Ephesus was a pull to conform. All around them was opposition to the gospel. And so Paul's going to show them, hey, here's your identity in Christ. You're in a tough place. I know it's a tough place, but you are called to be holy. You are called to be faithful. Back what we saw in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful. He's saying you need to be faithful in the way you treat people of different races. You need to be faithful in your sexual purity. You need to be faithful in your love, faithful in your speech, faithful in the way husbands and wives relate, faithful in the way children and parents treat each other, faithful in work relationships. He's going to show us throughout all Ephesians what faithfulness looks like in a tough place. But he gives us one glimpse of that faithfulness here in chapter 1, verse 2, in his greeting. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So before we get into all those details of what faithfulness looks like in all those arenas of life, he gives us this one big picture synopsis to those who are in Ephesus who are faithful. What does it look like? They have grace and they have peace. Now, I know these are words that Paul uses as a greeting at the beginning of a book a lot of times. But this is much more than a perfunctory greeting. This is a theme of the book that we'll see in the weeks to come of what it means to follow Christ. Those who truly believe, those who've been changed by God, have lives marked by grace. We've seen that way back in John chapter 1, 16. The grace upon grace that God provides for us. Those waves of grace that crash over us. And everything we'll see in Ephesians is not anything that you and I can self-will to do. I can't just get up and choose, I'm going to love more today. Or I'm going to be more determined today to be kinder to my spouse. That We can't white-knuckle determination our way through the book of Ephesians. That we are only going to be faithful by God's grace. As we receive God's grace and let his grace wash over us and change us. And we're going to see throughout these, these next six chapters of Ephesians what a life of grace looks like. But it's also a life that's a life of peace. Think back to John. In John 14 and John 16, we saw Jesus leaving his peace with us. When the people in Ephesus are able to have peace, in the midst of the idolatry of the temple, in the midst of having to use idolatrous coins, in the midst of demonic activity all around, and, and demon-possessed people beating up on people and running away naked that we saw in Acts. I mean, all in the midst of all that, they can have peace. They can have peace even when all their neighbors think they're crazy idiots for believing Jesus. They can have peace. It's God's will for them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see a lot more what that means for them. But I want to remind us this morning that the letter to the Ephesians was not just to the people in Ephesus. It was just for you and I as well. These letters, yes, they were occasional in nature. They were written by Paul under the inspiration of God to the people in Ephesus. But I'll try to be clear in my point in that it was written to remind believers then and now. Because it was written for us as well, friends. These are what we call circular letters. They were designed to be read in churches, not just in Ephesus, but in all the churches of the region. So it was God's will for this to be read in the villages that surround Ephesus, in the churches in the next provinces as well. It was also God's will for it to be read here at Gateway Baptist Church. Because it's God's will for all the churches of all time to be exposed to this truth that's written to the people of Ephesians and let it change us like it changed them. God inspired Paul to write this letter to the Ephesians to remind believers then and now, that's you and me as well, who we are and how our lives should be different because of it. So friends, do you and I need Ephesians? Yeah, I desperately need Ephesians. We all desperately need Ephesians. If you come to Gateway and you're not in Christ, I pray that Ephesians will enable you to continue wrestling with what we've seen already, of what Christ has done for you. Nothing you can do, but what Christ has done for you and what being a follower of God is really all about. It's to show you grace and how God pursues you with his grace. But friends, for believers, for those of us in Christ, we need this desperately as well. 
Because just like in the time of Ephesus, there are so many forces tugging at us, forces seen and unseen, to try to get our identity in everything besides Jesus. If you look at TV, if you look at movies, if you look at what your friends say, if you look at what marketing says and what companies are trying to do, we live in a culture where the seen and unseen, everything around us is trying to get our identity in everything besides Jesus. Trying to get our identity in our intellect, in our appearance, in our friend circles, in our family, in our job, in our money, and what we own, and what we do, and where we go, and our identity, and all these things, but those all come up so short. And for Ephesians, especially these first three chapters, is going to drive us back to who are you and I in Christ, and to root our identity in Christ. But we also need Ephesians because there's so many forces around us, seen and unseen, that try to tempt us to live like the world. There's so many pulls on my heart and your heart to become self-reliant and not pray. There's so many pulls all around us to sexual immorality. There's so many pulls around us to be selfish in our marriages. So many pulls around us to impure and unholy speech. So many pure pulls around us to worldliness and so much more. Our situation is not very different than the people in Ephesus. We're in a place to where all around us is a pull to conform, a pull to blend in, a pull to not be distinct, not to be holy, not to be faithful to Christ, but to live like the world. And the book of Ephesians, particularly chapters 4 through 6, when we get to those, are going to show us what it looks like to rely on God's grace, to walk in holiness, and all of those things. God inspired Paul to write this letter to the Ephesians to remind you and me as well who we are, our identity, and how we live because of it. With that said, my prayer for us in the study is what Paul prayed at the beginning of Ephesians. So I want you just, just to listen along to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, as I read for us here. This is, this is my prayer for us in this study. Ephesians 1, 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Friends, I pray God would do that in my heart and in your hearts as we continue our study of Ephesians, that he would give us a spirit of wisdom, of revelation, the knowledge of him, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know the hope to which he's called us, that we'd know the riches of his glorious inheritance, and we know the immeasurable greatness of his power working in our lives, friends. That is my prayer for us. So with that said, I want to give you two homework assignments this week, two challenges for this week. The first one is this. Take that prayer, Ephesians 1, 16. Go through about verse, you can even go all the way to verse 23. And would you pray that for yourself? As we launch into this in the months to come, it's going to be months, by the way. I, you don't think I'm going to do this in six sermons, right? We'll see how long it gets. But, um, as we spend months in the book of Ephesians, I want you to take a few minutes and just begin saying, Lord, as I study your words, I read Ephesians on my own, as we hear you know, talk corporately here, God, would you do this in me? And pray God would do these things in your own heart, that he would give us the spirit of wisdom. He'd give us revelation and the knowledge of him. He'd enlighten our eyes, that we would know the hope to which he's called us. He would know the riches of his glorious inheritance. Just pray that for yourself. Pray that for your spouse. Pray that for your kids. Pray that for me. I need it. Pray that for the other church leaders. Pray that for your friends. Pray that for one another. And would you this week take time to pray that prayer to the Lord and let's see what God does because we need this book to transform us, but that's God's grace gift. But I have a second homework assignment for you this week too, okay? I want you to read the book of Ephesians beginning to end. It's only six chapters. It's only five pages, only 2,500 words. Would you take a few minutes this week so we don't miss the forest for the trees, so to speak, 
read the whole book of Ephesians and just see the, the beautiful big picture that's being painted here for us of a message for us that we need to hear today of who I am in Christ and how my life will be different because of it. And if we'll do that this week, if we'll read the, this book and we'll pray these things, I'm excited about what God's going to do in my heart and your heart as we begin this journey together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the treasure of your word. Father, we thank you that you have given it to us. And Lord, to think that in your sovereign plan, you chose to call the Apostle Paul, that you took a man who hated you, a man who was stoning Christians and who hated Christians, and your kindness to him and to us. You zapped him with that light. You changed his heart. You drew him to yourself, and you commissioned him and sent him out, and you inspired him to write these words. And Lord, as I think about the town of Ephesus, it seems so much like what we face in Montgomery in a lot of ways. And we're surrounded with many who don't know you, many who don't believe in you. But we don't have a big temple of a false god here, Lord. All around us are lives marked by idolatry, the idolatry of money, the idolatry of sports, the idolatry of selfish ways. There's so many things that can consume our idols in our life. That we're all around us are people who are trying to pull us into worldliness, pull us into living like the world. But God, in your grace gift to us, you haven't left us wondering who we are or how we're to live. And you gave us this book of Ephesians. And God, I pray in my own heart and the heart of these precious brothers and sisters that over these next several months, as we dive into this book, that God, that you would enlighten our hearts, that you would open our eyes. And God, even if we've read it for, for decades of our lives, God, that we would each day look at it afresh with wonder and worship and amazement, Father, for who you are and for what you've done for us. And Lord, we'll give you the praise for how you transform us and change us through it. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing psalm this morning?